0: Good morning, Crosspoint. My name is Jeff Lopez. Thank you for everybody joining us online and those of you who have braved the elements uh, to be here. Um, as I said, my name is Jeff Lopez. I've been here uh, at the church since 2016 with my family. And in recent times, um, the church was gracious enough to uh, bring me on staff as a pastor of biblical counseling. And so that gives me the role of both doing counseling and then also uh, training others uh, in biblical counseling. Um, So some to perhaps join me in that task in the ministry here, um, and others perhaps to use those uh, skills of of applying God's word, uh, ministering God's word in a one-to-one sort of setting in uh, other personal settings in their life or in ministry here. So when Bruce asked me uh, to preach... I got to pick the date, and yes, without my uh, prognostication glasses firmly in place, uh, I chose August 20th, so thank you for being here, though. It actually looks like it's not so bad yet out there. Um, I chose to preach on a passage that relates to my role here, right, as the pastor of biblical counseling. I chose a passage... ...that relates closely to what we do in biblical counseling. So to introduce the passage, um, I want to tell you a bit about biblical counseling. Uh, Biblical counseling is not uh, psychotherapy or any kind of professional service that is delivered. Uh, It is more one blind beggar helping another blind beggar by leading them to where I found some food. It's discipleship. It's the body of Christ coming together... It's about practical help from God's word and gospel hope in Christ. It's about helping somebody function as a fruitful, durable disciple of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of really hard stuff. It's about people helping people understand the impact of their ideas, the thoughts and ideas in our head, what we believe to be true. It's about helping people think of and be aware of the impact of their desires, the things that motivate us and compel us, where our focus is. It's about helping them realize the impact of their commitments, the things we stand by, those strongest commitments in us that we we stand by. Because all of these functions of the inner man are interrelated and are operational in the background, subconsciously, in the moment that that pressure hits me, in the moment that that heat comes, Those things are there, they are present. So using an an uh, imperfect um, demonstration about the fact that the things we think about, the things we want, and the commitments we stand by are always at work within us when a heat hits us. This uh, illustration would suggest that, I'm going to suggest to you that if a jolt leads to water coming flying out of this glass, maybe spilling upon somebody else around me, my question to you is, is the primary cause of water coming out of this glass and spilling on somebody the jolt? Was that the main cause? Or perhaps, could the main cause of water coming out of the glass be because it wasn't milk in the glass? The water was there to begin with. Jesus tells us that what comes out of us started in us. And so Jesus can do a better job probably than my demonstration. (laughs) So let's go to Mark chapter 7, verse 20 to 23. Jesus said it like this. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things... Come from within, and they defile a person. Today, as we talk, as we meet here, we're going to be reading somebody else's mail. And this is going to be a letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the Christians in Rome. But I hope that you hear this letter and this message as God's message to you today, because that is what it is. What we're going to see here is intended, indeed, like all of Scripture really is, to renew and reshape those things that I believe to be true and those ideas and thoughts in my head, to renew and reshape those desires and motivations that I have in my heart. And it's to renew and reshape those commitments that I have and that I make and that I'm working to stand by. So this letter from Paul the Apostle to the Christians in Rome will help us in this. We're going to jump into a portion of the letter where Paul has just finished talking about the faith of Abraham. And he's tying our faith to his. And he's explaining how Abraham is made right with God by that faith, by that trust. From there, so we'll start off. I'll read a little portion of chapter 4. Catch a little bit of that context for us. I'll make a few comments there. Then we're going to read through our passage for today, which is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So if you have a Bible, please, um, in, shortly we'll have you go there. And if you uh, don't have one, there should be one near you in one of the seat backs. Uh, it's going to be a lot better if you're actually looking at what I'm talking about. I want to help guide you through a treasure hunt in God's Word here. Um, so once we read verses 1 through 5, I'll continue on a little bit further to verse 11 to get a little bit more context. It'll have some bearings on what we see. So, helping us see the point of Paul's message, I've come up with a, a three-part sentence, these three headings that will become some slides for us that will guide us through as we consider what Paul is saying, what God is saying in this, in this text as we go. Uh, but please join me in prayer before we do that. Lord God, thank you, Father, for this gathering of your people I pray, first of all, Lord, that you would be magnified, that you would be glorified here in this place by what happens both in my heart here on this stage and what happens in the seats before me. I pray, God, that you would help each one of us to receive and treasure your word like the good soil receives the seed. Would you help us to get the message, to see what's there, to understand it? Would you help us to care about it? And would you help us to do something with it? Would you help us to not just be hearers of the word, but be doers? Would you use your word now to to work in us, to change us? Would you give us the obedience of faith as we hear? Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the first thing that Paul does here in our passage is refers back to something he's been talking about. And so we're going to read that context. And the first uh, heading that we're going to have on a slide is that a keen awareness of the sure foundation underneath my friendship with God. Okay, that's the first part of a sentence. A keen awareness of the sure foundation underneath my friendship with God. Paul starts us off referring back to some of what he's been establishing. So I'm going to start... At chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 20, he's, he's here speaking of Abraham and his faith. It says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as Righteousness. Abraham took God at his word, and that trust was counted to him as righteousness. He was made right with God. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord. We are called to also take God at his word. And trust Him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who who was delivered up, verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Jesus Christ, our Lord, or our Master, He was delivered up, He was sacrificed for my sins, to deal with my sins and yours. And He was raised for our justification, to declare to the world, Who he is, because in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, God tells us, or Paul tells us, that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, in that, that God was declaring that this is my son. He was declared in power to be the son of God. So we see here in the beginning of this context before our our, uh, passage, that it was his sacrifice and his being raised for our justification to make us right with God, is his starting point. He's looking at this, and he says, moving into our text, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person one would even dare to die, though perhaps for a good person... shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So that takes us all the way through some of that extra context as well, and we're going to dig in just to the first five verses of chapter 5, and we see that after he speaks of Abraham's faith, he brings us now to see that we have been justified, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I am at peace with God. If you saw ahead at verse 10, where we read, "We were an enemy," He says, "I'm no longer an enemy now. To be at peace with God, I'm no longer an enemy." Romans 8:1 says, "There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not an enemy, I'm not condemned. And we saw also in our context, reading past in verse 9, that I was under his wrath. I'm not an enemy. I'm not condemned. I'm not under his wrath. I'm now a friend of God. This is a huge shift. This shift in us, in our position, in our standing that we have, is specifically and exclusively through Christ. And this term that we see, Jesus Christ this term Christ the Hebrew version is Messiah this term Christ is referring to Jesus as the anointed one as the chosen one you could say the promised king and only he right only he the only person in history who claimed to have come to have dealt with our sin the only person in history who claimed to have the authority even to forgive my sin and yours and the only person who was delivered up for it on a cross, and the only person who evidenced every claim he ever made in life and in death and in resurrection. Jesus Christ is the only proper object of our trust, of our faith. So when I trust that God the Father gave up his divine son to deal with my sin on that cross and to declare me right with him before, every, before everyone and everything in the universe... And to declare that his son is indeed who he said, not a supposed son of Joseph, but the son of God in power. When I trust and surrender my trust to the lordship of Jesus Christ, I am indeed at peace with God who is forever holy and who reigns over his creation in righteousness and justice. But there's more. I don't just have peace with God. I'm I'm not merely neutral in that I'm no longer an enemy and I'm at peace, but more than that, I am now secure in his grace. For our next slide. I am actively under his favor, his unmerited favor, not dependent on my law-keeping or my performance, but under the grace of God. God. And I'm being blessed and transformed by this grace. His grace is is known to be both his unmerited favor and also his transforming power in our lives. I have accessed this bottomless supply of grace, this bottomless authority, this bottomless transforming power, this grace of God in my life. I've accessed it by trusting in Christ. I now have a standing here. This is where I live. This is where I reside I'm secure in this identity as a friend of God. And this comes by faith. This comes by faith in Christ. This comes by taking God at his word. So what does it look like to be in this amazing place, standing in God's grace, a friend of the king of the universe, a friend of the one who created all things and has authority over all things? What does this look like to now have this friendship with God? Maybe easy street maybe i get all my desires you know maybe everything goes my way health and wealth maybe it's soda and all the drinking fountains that's not what paul that's not what paul concludes paul brings this up and his conclusion is that a keen awareness moving on from our one to one part of the sentence to the other a keen awareness of the sure foundation underneath my friendship with god leads to a joyful and unshakable future-oriented hope of glory. Verse 2 says, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. To rejoice is to celebrate. Some translations say exalt. We exult in hope of the glory of God. Hope is a certain vision of the future, right? Paul says to us elsewhere that we don't hope in something that we see. We hope in something out ahead. We hope in something that we, there's, no, there's no present realization. We're looking forward. Our certain vision of something promised but not obtained. And it is in something specific. It is of the glory of God. This is not something earthly or temporary. This is something eternal. The glory of God speaks to his his, um, value, his endless value and worth that is part of his character, his identity, the weight of it, the intrinsic weight and worth that he has. This hope is looking ahead to a culmination of an epic story that God has been telling all of us and all of creation since creation. And I want to have you glance at something Jesus says in his prayer, in the high high priestly prayer in John 17. I'm just going to read you a few verses at the end of it. From verse 25 through 26, Jesus says a few things here that capture this beginning to end story that's happening. He says, Father, Jesus praying here, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, has loved his own son with, would be in us and Christ in us. This hope is not looking to anything I can see and touch right now. This hope is not about financial security. It's not a hope in the government or a leader. It's not the hope in a social movement. God has given us a citizenship in another kingdom. Our hope is not here This hope is of a certain day ahead where I join, where we join together in the presence of the glory of God, celebrating and worshiping his son who conquered, who sacrificed himself as a lamb, who conquered as a lion and rescued his people from their sin. We will worship in glory one day in his Presence. So a keen awareness of the unshakable, sorry, a keen awareness of the sure foundation under my friendship with God leads to a joyful and unshakable future-oriented hope of glory. And then the third part, the third heading, and a glad reinterpretation of my worst circumstances because he is doing a loving work in me through all of it. So surprisingly, at verse 3, Paul goes on not just to say that we rejoice in this hope of the glory of God, some futuristic focused hope, but he speaks of the now. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, in the midst of our sufferings. Why should we be rejoicing? He uses the next word, knowing, That suffering produces endurance. It's a knowledge, it's a trustworthy knowledge that God is using my suffering. I have to decide in life what is going to be my source of truth. Is it going to be my understanding? Is it going to be my best understanding of my circumstances? Or is it going to be God's revelation to me in His Word? Proverbs 3, 5-8 to 8 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You see, my understanding can lead me to reinterpret what I know about God It might lead me to reinterpret what I know about myself and my standing with him. Or what I know about God could lead me to reinterpret my understandings. And so what I mean is that if I let the the problems, the struggles, the issue, the pain in my life be what I focus on, and I'm trying to see God in this situation, God's not going to look so good. Looking through this lens, he doesn't look so merciful. I might ask with the psalmist, are you asleep? Where are you, O God? I need to reinterpret if I put my focus on the surety of my standing that I had with, have with God, on the hope that he has put before me, and trusting that he is involved in this work that's go, that he's doing in my life. If I put this view of God first and this is my focus, now I can look at my problems and see them differently. And I can reinterpret these struggles and issues that are going on in my life such that I could rejoice even in the midst of them. To have a faith like Abraham, we would believe God and not doubt that he will accomplish just what he says. We will trust what he tells us about our future, about our standing with him, and about the process of getting there. But suffering produces this endurance. Now, suffering is, a, is a, a, a hardship, a trial. It's some type of affliction or oppression. It's, it's not a pleasant thing. To produce something is to create. It is to, to bring it into being. It is to, to bring it about or it's to result in this thing. The endurance he speaks of. It's this steadfastness or perseverance. It is this bearing up in face of difficulty. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." But the question is, will will I endure what I'm facing right now? Will I endure what I'm facing? Remember, the whole basis of this passage is faith. We are justified by faith. We have a standing in the grace of God by faith. Do I take God at his word? Am I trusting God? Will I meet the struggle I face with trust in Christ so that it will properly tune and direct my hope towards the glory of God? rather than something less. In verse 5, we learn that endurance produces character. Hope does not put us to shame. Sorry, in verse 4, endurance produces character. That character we're talking about. This, the Greek word behind that comes from something to mean to examine, to test, to prove. Character is, is, is proven grit. Endurance builds in us this character. Character this proven grit. And that character in verse 4 is said to produce hope. But what hope is he now talking about? Is he not still talking about hope in the glory of God? Is he maybe talking about hope in my physical strength? Is he talking about hope in my health? Is he talking about hope in my finances? Is he talking about hope that the relationship's going to work? Hope that the cancer doesn't go away? Hope that I keep the job? Hope that the storm doesn't hit? Hope in the power of positive thinking? Hope in all of those things can fail miserably. I can look like the fool if my hope is in those things. I can be wrong. Paul is not urging us to have that kind of hope. He is not giving us a Jocko Willink message, as good as those may be. He is not giving us self help. This sermon is not a self help seminar. We're looking for divine help. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, now he says, and hope does not put us to shame. The hope that he gives us cannot fail. You see, God is training us. He's training my hope like a gardener might train a vine in a, to grow in a certain direction and to have a certain aim. He's not training me to hope in circumstances going my way or a certain way. He taught us to pray that the Father's will would be done, which is to say not my will, but that the Father's will would be done. He is aiming my hope towards something unbreakable and more certain than the breath in my lungs and in your lungs right now. It's to His Son and to His glory. By context, we should have in mind this glory, this glory of God, this hope of the glory of God. This is the eternal perspective that God is shaping in us through our sufferings that lead to endurance, that lead... character that leads to a proper hope. But there's going to be some objections. And so to address some objections that could be coming up about having such a hope in the midst of suffering, a couple of things. First of all, am I not supposed to ask God to give me relief in my suffering then? Am I supposed to just celebrate it? Well, Jesus gives us an example in Mark chapter 14, 34 to 36. The night that he is betrayed... Before that happens, he says this. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet... Not what I will, but what you will. We have an example from Christ himself asking the Father to not have to go through this. Asking the Father to have relief. But it's qualified with an absolute trust that our God, our Father knows what is good. And his plan is best. And so while he does indeed cry out for help, In this sense, there is a resolve that God is at work. And in 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter tells us to cast our anxieties on God because he cares for you. So yes, we should be calling out to God in our suffering. Yes, we can be asking for relief. Yes, he cares for us, but we need to trust that if the relief we think we need doesn't come, it's not because God is not at work. Another objection could be, what about suffering because of some evil perpetrated against me? Am I supposed to rejoice in this wickedness that some person has done to me or my loved one? Does this perp get off the hook? And the answer is no. Um, When Joseph was sold into slavery he was nearly killed and then instead his 10 of his 11 brothers conspired to sell him off into slavery to get rid of him and then joseph ends up because god is using all these circumstances joseph ends up number 2 in command in egypt and he now is a rescue to his family he's a rescue to the people of israel jacob and then his father jacob and all his brothers come to Egypt and are rescued from the famine. And then when Jacob dies, the brothers freak out because they're thinking, Dad's gone. Now he's going to take his vengeance on us because of what we did to him. And here's where we jump in. And, And it says, But Joseph said to them, Genesis chapter 50, 19 to 21, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it, For good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. But he did not just say, It's cool. No, he said, You meant evil. They were declared wicked and wrong and evil. Those sorts of things perpetrated against us remain evil and God deals with evil. All sin is punished on the back of the sinner or on the back of their Savior. Joseph still calls their actions evil, but he's able to recognize God being at work even in their inexcusable wickedness. Their evil does not stop him from trusting the Lord. So why does Paul contend that this hope cannot fail? How is it such a certainty that indeed I will stand validated by having this hope of the glory of God, even in the midst of terrible things going on? Verse 5, And the hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. God's love poured into our heart. Love in Scripture is about selfless acts for the good of another. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, we read this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God sent this sacrifice to make us right with him. And look at how God commits himself to us long before the birth of Christ. In Jeremiah 32, 40-41, this prophet, speaking on behalf of God, speaking of the new covenant to come, that Christ later will say declaring this new covenant is in his blood, this new covenant that we're grafted into by faith, we become a member of Abraham's family by faith, God says this, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul." God asks us, he calls us to worship him, to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here, long before he sent Jesus, he says that he is committing himself, heart and soul, to do his people good, to bring about the promises that he has given. And he, he shows up. He does exactly that. When we are in Christ, the Father loves us from the inside out. He puts into us the very love that he has for his son. Remember the high priestly prayer. I can and should rejoice in a confident hope that God is at work in me to shape me and build me into one who is eagerly hoping in the glory of God and who can, find, who can stand firm in the worst circumstances. Not with a false hope that it's all going to work out wonderful on this side of glory, Mm -mm, I don't know that, but with a celebration that our hope is not in anything that this world can give us or that this world can take from us. But how does God pour this love into us? This love with which he loves the Son, how how does that come in to us? Verse 5b, second part, says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God gives his children his spirit. Titus 3, 4-7, here Paul says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that's new life, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In His mercy, God has made us family. And He's given us an eternal hope. And He's done this in this new birth by this washing and regeneration, the sending of His Spirit. through God. He has made us family and we are heirs with Christ. But finally, how does the presence of the Spirit of God in me result in this guarantee that my hope will be true, will be validated, that, I, that I'm rightly, I truly am being trained, and that this suffering is purposeful and that my hope won't fail, how is it that the Spirit of God in me secures that, that hope to be certain? Well, in Ephesians 1:13 13 13-14, Paul says this, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. We have this guarantee, the Holy Spirit's role, a role of the Holy Spirit in my life is to seal me. Paul says in another, in Ephesians 4.30 that I'm sealed for the day of redemption. It's to seal me and ensure, guarantee this inheritance that is ahead for me. In the, in the final verses that we'll do to look at this, still talking about this idea of how is it that the Spirit of God in me ensures that indeed this hope in the glory of God, that despite the hardest circumstances I have, that I still rejoice in hope, how does that Spirit of God, what is He doing that, that makes that true, that, that makes me stand up in the end and said this hope was not false? Romans 8, I'll read 22, and we'll we'll stop probably at uh, verse 32. Here, Paul has been explaining that though we have suffering right now, the glory ahead far outweighs it, far outweighs anything we're experiencing. Picking up at verse 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't know exactly what to pray for. There are things that I would not think to pray for. But the Spirit does know. And God works it out. With the Holy Spirit, it says, And he who searches hearts, the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit in me, and God the Father, ruling over creation and righteousness and justice, they work it out. So that, verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He is working a good work to make me like Christ, to make you like Christ, that we look like our big brother. And those whom he predestines, Predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. He has seen it through to the end. The the track is set. God is going to accomplish the purpose for which he set out in you. Paul celebrates. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then what is, to me, one of the most precious verses in Scripture. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As I'm in my struggle, what resource in heaven is God going to hold back You could say he has gone all in. Evidenced by a bloody cross. He said he would put all his heart and soul into doing his people good and keeping his promises and taking them where he said they would take him. They took him at his word. Jacob took him at his word. Abraham initially took him at his word. When we take him at his word, I know there is not a resource that he won't give. There's not a mountain. There's not a wall that won't come down. There's not a resource. He's, he's given his son. And he sent his spirit to reside in me. God will hold nothing back from finishing what he began. This passage goes on to more, more peaks. Uh, but I'm beginning to preach a different sermon. So we will instead turn to, to close. And in closing, I want to offer you... Uh, this, a summary of this sermon in a sentence, it's not precisely that sentence that we've been working through as headings, it's a more of a summative thing. And it, and it is this, As a friend of God, by faith in Christ, when I believe and maintain a keen awareness of the sure foundation upon which my friendship with Him stands, of the glorious future that He has for me, and of the loving work that God is doing in me by His Spirit, I can reinterpret my circumstances and confidently rejoice even in the face of suffering. Or, from a different angle, if I allow my difficult circumstances to cloud my view of God, I might reinterpret what I knew about my status with Him, about my future with Him, and about what he is doing in my life, and I'll probably be miserable. Or, yet again, if I do not know peace with God, because I have not surrendered my trust and loyalty to his son who died to deal with my sin and was raised to declare to the universe that I am now right with God, and that I have, I have then now opportunity today to access the grace of God and to change my standing with him by calling upon Christ to forgive my sin, to be my king, and to make me a friend of God. I also have some work for you to do. Answer, answer uh, this for yourself. Why does this matter? Why, why is this message uh, in, in this part of the, Paul's letter to the Romans matter today? And more than that, how is it significant in my life? How is it significant in your life? How is God shaping and building your hope right now? Where do you have opportunity to trust Christ and reinterpret your circumstances? How can you settle your vision on the hope of glory? Can you maintain an awareness of your standing in the grace of God as a friend? Can you trust in the glorious future He holds for you and His loving plan to shape you as He gets you to glory? If you need help in putting your attention to any of these things, consider scanning the QR code I have uh, up on the screen in a moment. That will take you to something I wrote called The Drawing Near to God Guide. And it's about helping you abide in Christ actively like a branch abides in the vine through private worship, meeting with God. If you need any help training and looking and seeing hope in what I just shared, consider, consider that. And then join me for prayer.